questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. How do we define a mystery? To the good people of New Mexico and many others involved in what has been termed the ultimate cold case file, it can be defined in a single word. Roswell. At the dawn of the 21st century, Roswell has become synonymous with one of the most important events of all time. For that fact alone, it deserves to be researched and investigated until there is nothing left to investigate, or until a final conclusion is reached that is acceptable to most reasonable minds. Tonight's special guest believes that the latter option has already been achieved. If UFOs don't exist, then they can't crash. But something did crash in July 1947. Was it terrestrial or not? Tonight, we unmask what it might be the government's biggest cover-up. What really transpired in Roswell 75 years ago? Tonight, we'll pry loose the truth the government doesn't want us to know. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's show. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Thomas J. Carey is a U.S. Air Force veteran who held a top-secret security clearance. He has spent the last 23 years investigating the Roswell incident and published more than 35 articles about it. Tom has appeared as a guest on many radio and TV shows and contributed to a number of Roswell-related documentaries. Together with Donald Schmidt, they have written many best-selling books such as Witness to Roswell. And I was hoping that we were going to have both here today, but for some reason, Donald could not make it. So, Tom Carey, it's you and I. Hello, Tom. Welcome to Veritas. Nice to be with you, Mel. My pleasure. Well, for those who might not be familiar with the Roswell crash, Tom, why don't we give them a quick synopsis? Take us back to the summer of 1947. Paint a picture of what life was during that time after World War II and pretend we are living in the small town of Corona, New Mexico, when the event happened. Wow. Now, uh, just before I uh, answer your question, you have to realize that uh, I have like 31 years of small details on this case. And uh, it's very hard for me to uh, summarize things because, uh, you know, we're always chasing little little nuggets. You know what I mean? So, uh, but right after World War II, especially in a uh, remote place like New Mexico uh, and Corona, the, uh, the two towns involved in the Roswell story are Corona, New Mexico, which is more central, 
and uh, central in the state. And then uh, Roswell itself, which is in the southeastern quadrant of the state. Now, uh, this is a uh, very remote. They uh, the ranches didn't have electricity. Certainly, no television. With well, not many people had TV anyway in 1947. But uh, they might have received a weekly newspaper of some sort. But that's about it. And uh, uh, New Mexico at the time was a hotbed of nuclear research and military activity. The, the uh, captured German uh, V-2 rockets from World War II were being tested from Alamogordo uh, Field, uh, Alamogordo, uh, White Sands, New Mexico. And they were testing the V-2 rockets. The uh, Los Alamos uh, Laboratories, which uh, helped develop the, the atomic bomb, was located in the northeastern quadrant of uh, New Mexico, north of uh, Albuquerque. And uh, I'm leaving out the uh, – there's a weapons development uh, facility. Uh, the name escapes me, uh, Mel. Um, Sandia. Sandia Base. Uh, nuclear weapons, uh, regular weapons. So there's a lot of military scientific stuff going on in New Mexico. And now uh, Corona is a, is a ranching town, very small. Uh, and that's where the, the, uh, finder, the first, uh, fellow who got this whole case started, that's where he had a ranch. Now, Right after World War II, our military was like on a, a pedestal. It's not like it is today where, you know, you don't always believe what the military is telling you. And certainly the, the newspapers, uh, right at, you know, beginning with Vietnam, don't, don't accept at face value anything that the military says. But back in 1947, the, our military was at the height of its influence having uh, dispatched the uh, Germans, uh, helping to dispatch the Germans in Europe and the Japanese in the Pacific. So anything they said at that time tended to be believed, unlike today. So uh, the country is coming out of World War II, trying to get on a uh, civilian footing. Uh, the post-war boom is about to start. And uh, all of a sudden, on June 24th, 1947, something called flying saucers burst onto the scene. Now, during World War II, Allied pilots, uh, bombers and fighters, uh, they encountered these bright globs of light, and that's what they appeared to be, that they called Foo Fighters, uh, uh, which is French for, uh, I don't know, it's either false or fire. I forget which one it was that they were trying to describe, uh, but uh, they were encountering these things they called Foo Fighters, and they thought they were German, of German origin, just some some uh, Wunderwaffen, some wonder weapon that they had developed. The Germans on the other side, they thought it was an allied Wunderwaffen. So nobody really knew what these things were or who manufactured them. 
So here we come uh, to 1947. The war is over for two years. We already have our next adversary being the Soviet Union. The Cold War is about to start. In fact, it's already started because Winston Churchill in 1946 in a small Missouri college, he was brought, you know, he came over to the U.S. to, uh, because he had been voted out of office, believe it or not, uh, helped uh, win the war and they voted him out of office over there in Great Britain. But uh, so he came over in a small college in uh, Missouri, he said, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic. It's like an iron curtain has descended upon the continent of Europe. And that sort of uh, set the stage for the Cold War, iron curtain, Cold War beginning. So you have these uh, June 24th. 1947, uh, a businessman who was also a private pilot by the name of uh, Kenneth Arnold. He's flying from uh, uh, Boise, Idaho to someplace in Montana or vice versa. (laughs) I forget. I'm sorry. It's one of the two. But he's near Mount Rainier in Washington State. And he sees these nine objects flying in echelon formation, like like uh, the tail of a kite, how the, how the tail of a kite flaps. And uh, he was able to time th- their speed at something around 1,200 miles an hour. Now, back in 1947, we didn't have anything that went 1,200 miles an hour. We do today, but not back in 1947. And this is near Mount Rainier. And uh, so he lands and he reports it and the press uh, got wind of the story and they all flocked to the airport. They said, uh, Mr. Arnold, Mr. Arnold, what, uh, what did they look like? He said, well, uh, you, if you take a, a, a plate, a plate, a saucer, like, you know, coffee cup and saucer, and you threw it and uh, over a quiescent pond it would skip it would skip like a saucer a flying saucer and someone coined the name flying saucer from that interview so uh, right then it was uh oh what are these you know headlines around the uh, country initially what are these things called flying saucers where are they from and uh, i think one newspaper even uh, uh, put out a uh, three, $3,000 reward for a piece of one. And uh, so that's what's going on June 24th, a week and a half later. This is only a week and a half later since the start of the modern age of UFOs or flying saucers, the Roswell crash occurs. June 2nd, 1947. It, it took us a long time to to nail the date down, but we were able to nail it down because the witnesses uh, uh, in, in the Corona area, especially, uh, they remember that it, uh, it, it happened during a thunder and a lightning storm on June. This uh, They just remembered it. They heard this strange explosion during this thunder and lightning storm during the first week of July. 
1947. Well, uh, you know, when we interviewed them, they couldn't remember the date, but we uh, researched the date with weather data. And the only thunder and lightning storm in central New Mexico late at night was on June the 2nd. So that's how we were able to pinpoint. You mean July? Yeah. Oh, did I say? I'm sorry, July. And I'm so glad, Tom, that you are nailing down the date because for decades I've been hearing it was all the way from mid-June to the beginning of July, but nobody could actually pinpoint that date. So with the witness testimony... July 2nd. Yeah, July 2nd, 1947, right. Yeah, late at night, maybe between 11 and 11 p.m. and midnight. And that's that's from the witnesses and and the weather data. I mean, we went back and forth until we got the weather data. I mean, we we had it as late as July 4th, July 1st, uh, but we were able to get the weather data that the only storm, thunderstorm that week in central New Mexico was on the evening of July 2nd. So we were able to pin that down. Took a long time, but we were able to do it. So that, uh, so the next day, this fellow rancher from Corona named Mac, uh, William Ware Mac Brazel. He's out to check his, uh, his sheep, the sheep. And he comes across in uh, one of the pastures, this about a mile long and a couple hundred feet wide, this, uh, all this strange metal, uh, strewn about a lot of it covering uh, an area about a mile long by several hundred feet wide. What is this stuff? It had all these strange properties. And uh, so he he gathered up uh, some of it, put it in uh, two cardboard boxes, and uh, that's the morning of July the third. We're talking about now about the morning of July the third. He has a rancher's son, uh, the neighbor's son named Timothy D. Proctor is with him, and they they come across all this uh, strange material. Well, the next day is July the 4th, so they have the rodeo in uh, Carrizozo, uh, New Mexico, and he takes some of this stuff with him, and he you know, he showed it around. Nobody knew what it was. What is this stuff? Some of it was very, very thin, you know, like a piece of uh, tin foil, but you couldn't bend it, and you couldn't cut it, you couldn't scratch it. The strangest piece was the what we call memory metal, where you could it was very flexible. You could wad it up in your hand like a piece of cellophane, and then let you open up your hand and it would unfurl itself and just sort of float there in the air, you know, as it slowly falls to the ground. And that's what we call memory metal, and it, it had people stupefied. What is this stuff? Well, he he didn't know, and they didn't know. So. Uh, the next day, this this would be July the 5th, Brazel, uh, after he does his chores on the ranch, he takes a piece of this memory metal and goes to uh, Wade's Bar in you know, Corona, you know, to hoist a few uh, tall ones. And in at uh, Wade's Bar, he, he passes it around. What is this stuff, guys? Any, any of you know what this stuff is? And they couldn't they couldn't figure it out. And somebody says, 
maybe it's from one of those flying saucer things that uh, people are starting to talk about. And you know, Mac, there's a $3,000 reward for a piece of one of those things. Oh, yeah? Well, the next day, Sunday, July the 6th, Mac Brazel gets in his dusty pickup and travels the 75 miles from his bunkhouse uh, on the J.B. Foster Ranch near Corona. He makes a 75-mile trip to Roswell. Uh, he heads for the sheriff's office because be- before Mac left uh, Corona for Roswell, he discovered uh, something else. Now, you know, when you're a rancher and you're, you know, that's your life, you're out there, you're very sensitive to changes in the environment. And he noticed the, some birds of prey circling about uh, a mile and a half from his uh, ranch, but it was still on the ranch, but from the bunkhouse. And he, he smelled something strange in the air, something strange in the air, about a mile and a half away, very faint. But he could see the, the uh, birds of prey, vultures, what have you, circling something. So uh, Timothy D. Proctor is with him, and they go over to this low bluff. And lo and behold, there's two diminutive little bodies atop this bluff, obviously dead, obviously not human. They're humanoid, but they're not human. And the overriding feature was its frail, frail body, about three and a half feet, uh, three feet tall, with an oversized oval-shaped head, obviously not human. So this has, really has him upset. I mean, he was going to head for Roswell anyway to get somebody to clean up he, because his sheep wouldn't cross this pasture. It spooked them. Whatever was in the pasture spooked the sheep. To get them to water, you have to, they had to go over this pasture, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't go over it. So he wanted somebody out there who was responsible for that stuff to clean it up. But then, just before he left, he comes across these two little bodies. You know, what, what the hell is going on here? What is this stuff? And so he heads for the sheriff's office in Roswell, uh, where the uh, Sheriff George Wilcox, who the uh, sheriff of Chavez County, the county seat was in Roswell. So he goes to the sheriff's office. Hey, George, what, 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 what is this? What is this stuff? And he told him about the, the field of strange metal and the, that uh, someone told him that it could be a flying saucer. Wilcox doesn't believe any of this. He knows that this uh, metal is funny, funny, but he doesn't believe Brazel's story. So just then the, the telephone rings, and it's a fellow by the name of uh, Frank Joyce. He's a, an announcer on radio station KGFL in Roswell. It's Sunday afternoon now, somewhere around noontime. He's spinning records and telling the folks where they could buy cattle feed and that sort of stuff. And uh, he calls the sheriff's office out of, you know, a sort of perfunctory to, uh, hey, you know, anything that uh, happening in, in your, your area, Sheriff Wilcox, that I can put on the air. 
you know, auto crash, uh, some, uh, you know, some uh, crime, anything that he could put on the air. And Wilcox sees his chance to get rid of Brazel. He says, oh, yes, yes, yes. By the way, I have a fellow here who has a very interesting story. Uh, I think uh, you might want to, you know, listen to him. Maybe, maybe he can put that on the air. So he puts Brazel on the phone with uh, Will Co- uh, with uh, Frank Joyce at KGFL. Joyce doesn't believe the story either. He says, "What? What do I got here?" And uh, so the way he gets out of it, uh, he said he tells Brazel, "Well, you know, uh, Brazel Mac." that uh, anything that comes from the sky, and it sounds like what you're telling me came from the sky. That's the purview or the responsibility of the Air Force. And uh, the the 509th Bomb Group was located seven miles south of Roswell, the big 509th Bomb Group. He says, why don't you call them? Uh, That's who is responsible for this goodbye. And by the way, that's the only atomic strike force in the world at the time, right? Yes. The 509th Bomb Group, uh, Mel, at the time, was the uh, United States elite unit. I mean, you all, you know, we had a great Navy and Army, but the 509th Bomb Group was created in 1942 strictly to drop the atomic bomb or a bombs on Japan. It was actually, it was uh, first, uh, they were supposed to drop them on Germany, but Germany surrendered uh, too quickly. And so they changed the target to Japan because they had created two atomic bombs, uh, fat man and little boy. And I might have that backwards. Fat, fat, yeah, fat man, little boy. Well, so, the 509th Bomb Group, they're stationed over in Tinian in the Pacific during World War II. The, uh, the uh, bombs are delivered by the Indianapolis cruiser that, unfortunately, a few months later, uh, we're talking about 1945 now. Unfortunately for the Indianapolis, they got sunk the, almost like the last day of the war, and nobody knew that they had been sunk and uh, they lost a lot of people in the uh, in the ocean because they had some cockamamie uh, uh, way that they had that ships were accounted for and one of them one of the strangest things is when a ship came back they they never logged it in or anything so that the crew of the Indianapolis uh, they spent five days uh, battling sharks. In the uh, out in the Pacific before they were rescued. Well, anyway, they delivered the the bomb to the uh, uh, 509th Bomb Group on Tinian. They dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the war is over. So after the war, they relocated to seven miles south of Roswell. So that's uh, where the Air Force comes in. Sheriff Wilcox who later said it was the biggest mistake of his life to contact the Air Force first. He said he should have contacted the media first. Then the story wouldn't have been covered up. Hmm. 
he was he was felt he really made a mistake in calling the Air Force because uh, the thing that what they did was they covered it up. They recovered it, yes, but they covered it up. So, uh, so Wilcox calls the base, and out comes the base intelligence officer. We're now talking a Sunday afternoon. Jesse Marcel, who Major Jesse Marcel is the base intelligence officer. He takes the call. And so Blanchard, uh, William Blanchard, the Colonel William Blanchard, the commanding officer, says, go, go see what they have. Uh, check out that box of stuff. Because they're all thinking, Mel, that it's Russian. They're all thinking that it's got to be Russian. And uh, so out goes Marcel. He looks at some of this stuff uh, in one of the boxes, and he he doesn't know what it is either. So he says, "You know, can I have this box? I, you know, I want to. I have to take it back to my commanding officer and see what see if he wants to do anything about this. I don't know what it is." So uh, back he goes to the base. Blanchard doesn't know what it is, but he's still concerned that it's Russian. So he tells Brazel, "Take somebody with you. Follow the rancher out." and see what's in that sheep pasture. And so he takes with him uh, the counterintelligence officer, the, uh, the the top counterintelligence officer on the base, fellow named Sheridan Cavett. And both of them, they go out, uh, they follow the rancher out to the, the, the J.B. Foster ranch. But it's uh, too, late, too late in the afternoon to go to the site, which is about uh, two miles away, a mile or two away, away. So they spend the night, eating uh, Campbell's cold uh, 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 beans. Uh, they had this, uh, what is it, ham and beans or something that's one of Campbell's uh, dishes <laughs> out of a tin can. Cold uh, beans and uh, uh, what have you. They spent the night in this little bunkhouse called the Heinz House. Only recently uh, was that, that Heinz House stood for years until last year, they tore it down last year. Fortunately, I'm one of these guys that uh, I like to take a picture of everything uh, with my camera because you never know what's going to happen later on. And uh, the Heinz house uh, lasted probably longer than most things, and uh, it lasted until last year. So uh, the next day they go out. And here, there's, here's this big field of strange metal and a number of other little things. Uh, uh, Cavett was driving a Jeep carryall. That's a, that's a Willie's Jeep with a sort of like a pickup in the back. So he filled that up, and Cavett, you know, he sends Cavett back to the base with a Jeep full of this strange metal. That we're now talking. Uh, this is Monday, uh, uh, let's see, they got there on the 6th. This is Monday the 7th. So Cavett goes back to the base with all, with all this stuff on the 7th. Marcel is still out there looking at everything, picking up. He drove his uh, baby blue 1942 Buick Roadmaster out there and filled that up. And uh, Brazel uh, goes back to town. And uh, so early in the morning of the 8th now, this is now Tuesday morning, Brazel finally heads back to Roswell. He stops off at his house to show his wife. It's now 2 a.m. on the 8th. He wakes up his wife and his son, 
because he's convinced already, Mel, he's convinced already that it's a fly. The wreckage is from not from this earth, to use his his words, not from this earth. So he wakes up his son and his uh, wife. You're never you're probably never going to see this again. But what you are looking at is something that uh, came to Earth, but was not from from Earth. And uh, his son, Jesse Jr., who recently, well, not, in, he died in 2013. I knew him well. Uh, Jesse Jr., who was 11 years old at the time, he picks up one of these strange pieces of debris. It's like uh, if you, it's like cutting a, it has the shape of a uh, eye beam, you know, if, like for a railroad track, you know, it's shaped like an eye. If you cut it, uh, you know, transversely, it's shaped like an eye. But in, in the inner collar of this eye beam, which is about 18 inches long, and it doesn't weigh anything, are these strange symbols. No one has ever been able to figure them out. We brought linguists in and what have you, and no one has ever been able to figure out what these strange symbols mean. And Jesse, uh, he always tells that story uh, of looking at this strange writing that was from another world. No ancient language expert is able to ever decipher it. Correct. Correct. So, you know, uh, uh, Marcel, you know, he puts all this stuff back in the, uh, his Buick goes to the base and at the morning uh, meeting on Tuesday morning, the, the regular Tuesday morning briefing uh, meeting at the base, uh, guess what the main topic of discussion was? <laughs> It was what, what the hell is this stuff? And uh, so Blanchard dispatches uh, Marcel to Fort Worth, where the next hired, where the five, I'm sorry, where the 8th Air Force, see, the 509th Bomb Group was part of the 8th Air Force, the Mighty 8th, as it was known during World War II. And they're headquartered now in Fort Worth, Texas. So he dispatches Ramey to, to Fort Worth with, a, with a, a box of this stuff that he had brought back and uh from that meeting now it th this is a bone of contention uh, between myself i mean uh, don schmidt and myself we agree on everything except on what what who put out that famous headline raaf roswell army airfield captures flying saucer in roswell region I thought it was a local faux pas, a local mistake by the base commander, Blanchard. Don believes it was all orchestrated from Washington. Put it out there, then take it away. And uh, my feeling is that if you want to cover something up and don't want them to know about it, why put out a big headline telling them what it is? I, 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 that, that's, that's the way I see it, but... Don sees it the other way, that it was all orchestrated. Put it out there, take it away, and, and make everybody feel silly. Uh, let, let, me, let me add to this, because I'm glad you mentioned this. I, I don't know how many times I've heard the uh, ABC News headline edition with Taylor Grant 
And yes. many people have heard it. A quote, headline edition, July 8th, 1947. Yes. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in possession of the Army, end quote. Now, two questions come to mind with this, Tom. Was this broadcast nationwide? And was the government and the military aware it was being released? Or was it done on purpose? Since I think it was nationwide. Yes. Uh, Taylor Grant, who actually lived... Uh just a few miles from me before he, he passed away about 10 years ago. I never knew it. Otherwise, otherwise I would have been knocking on his door, <laughs> sure. but I never knew he lived so, lived so close to me. But uh, you're absolutely right that that uh, uh, radio, it was a headline edition, uh, August, August uh, July the 8th, 1947. And you're exactly right of what Taylor Grant said. Now, my feeling is, if you don't want people to know about it, why put it out there? And what happened was uh, Colonel Blanchard uh, called uh, the base public information officer, Walter Hout, after the, Tuesday, after the Tuesday morning meeting. He calls him into his office, and he says, I want you to put this onto the – give this to the media. Well, what it was was a statement saying that – the 509th had come into possession of a uh, flying saucer uh, with the help of a local rancher. And the only person it names, it doesn't give the name of the rancher, but it gives the name of Jesse Marcel. He's the only one mentioned in this this uh, press release. And uh, Walter Howe, who we knew very well for over 20 years, he questioned, he says, he questioned, uh, Blanchard, he says, you really want to, you really want to put this out? And he said, yep, put it out. The question is, and at that time, Roswell only had four media outlets, two radio stations, uh, KGFL, KSWS, and two newspapers, a morning edition called the Roswell Morning Dispatch, which had closed, uh, they had put, they had gotten their issue out before, you know, uh, all this information uh, came around. So they missed the story on the first day. And the second, the second uh, newspaper was uh, the Roswell Daily Record, which really went with the story. And so Blanchard uh, wrote the press release. Walter Howe delivered it, but did Blanchard do that on his own? Or was that orchestrated from Washington? And I think it was uh, done on its own because soon after it hit the wire, it the wire, the you know the AP, the Associated Press, the United Press International, it went around the world like as fast like lightning, and it was said the talk uh, certainly in the country and in all in the uh, many parts of the world, and uh, so. Fort Worth, uh, General Ramey was out of the office, but his second in command, the Thomas Jefferson DuBose, a colonel who was deputy commander, he receives this angry call from a fellow named Clements. Uh, um, oh, my goodness. I'm starting to forget names now. Uh, uh, from the, the next higher uh, command, then uh, the Eighth Air Force would be the commander of SAC, the Strategic Air Command. And now Roswell was the first SAC base. It was the very first SAC base, the Strategic Air Command. Clements McMullen, deputy commander of SAC 
in Washington calls General Ramey. Uh, Ramey's not there, so the deputy commander take, takes the call. McMullen is just fit to be tied. What are you guys doing? Uh, you figure something out to get the press off Ramey's back. That was exactly what he said. And we got that from uh, DuBose. And this is a major general upset. Yes. Yes. He's upset, angry. Do something to kill this story. So I'm thinking, well, why put it out, why put it out in the first place if, if you're trying to orchestrate? Uh, to me, it was a local faux pas, and they never expected the reaction that it got. Was That's, McMullen I, the one who concocted the weather balloon story to put out the, the quote-unquote no, fire? it wasn't McMillan, uh, McMullen. It was uh, DuBose. Uh, we interviewed DuBose in 1991. And DuBose said the, the weather balloon story was a concoction of uh, someone in Fort Worth. He didn't know who it was, whether it was Ramey himself or somebody else that said, uh, you know, let's do a weather balloon, you know. So that's how the weather balloon story came about. McMullen ordered Fort Worth do something to get the press off Ramey's back. And here, here comes the weather balloon story. Now. Just between me, you, and the fence post, uh, they would have been better served had they said it was like the crash of one of our latest uh, fighter jets that we're testing, you know, something like that. But they went so far as to the weather balloon story. Now, the 509th bomb group in, in Roswell was our elite unit in the military with their fingers on the atomic trigger. Now, I don't know about you, Mel, but someone who can't tell the difference between a an interplanetary spaceship and a weather balloon, I don't want their finger on the, the, <laughs> the atomic nuclear, trigger. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how that uh, came about. There's still arguments over whether it was orchestrated from Washington or it was a local faux pas, and everything, and they, you know, they covered it up. My own, my belief is that it was a local faux pas. That's the only thing that uh, Schmidt and I disagree on, but we we agree on most everything else. But well, uh, let me dissect some of the things you've said, because the weather balloon, and also later we have the crash test dummies, and the crash test dummies actually were not in production until 1949, I believe, two years later. So they keep embellishing the story, trying to convince the populace that that this is not really what, what uh, was told. But my biggest question of all, 1947, but it wasn't until 1978, correct me if I'm wrong, why did it take a little bit more than 30 years for it to become mainstream? Was it that long that the government took to concoct a final story to finally let it out? Let it out? No. no, they... Uh the, the the first story they had was the right one that they had captured. Well, they didn't capture. They had recovered a crashed uh, flying saucer. That was their first story. It was the correct one. The second story was the weather balloon one, which I just told you about. The third one was this uh, 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 high altitude 
Project Mogul Balloon Array, which which consisted of weather balloons <laughs> uh, ho- uh, hoisting acoustic sensors up into the stratosphere to listen in on what they expected to be the uh, first detonation of the uh, uh, Soviets' uh, atomic bomb. Uh, so that was their four. Uh, that was their one. To, that was their third explanation. The fourth explanation was the crash test dummies. That uh, They came out with that in 1992, I believe. And they have a fifth one out there now that uh, they it's unofficial, but the, the, the fifth one they have now is that it was, uh, oh, my goodness. Um, I... I there's a, they have one out there now, and we talk about it all the time, and it's just slipped my mind. But it's something that scientists talk about that it was just um, – it'll come to me. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I just – I can't remember the fifth one, which is unofficial. Their last official statement, Mel, on this was 1997 during the 50th anniversary of the Roswell crash. They came out with this uh, uh, anthropomorphic dummies that uh, they were using in high-altitude parachute drops in the mid-1950s. This is almost 10 years after Roswell. Right. And uh, this is in, you know, this is in anticipation of high-flying aircraft and uh, our uh, advent into the space program. What if you had to bail out from 100,000 feet? Uh, they were using crash test dummies first before they tried a uh, human being uh, bailing out at 100,000 feet, which they did. But if this came so, in 49 or the 50s, why would they even mention it if this was 47 before they even came along? Well, they, they did actually, they, they, it was a UFO investigator that came across this project mogul because they, the weather balloon story had lasted until the, the, um, project, uh, 1994, when they came out with the project mogul, you know, the, um, what happened was that the, um, they undertook the, uh, they reopened the case in 1994 because a fellow by the name of Stephen Schiff, a congressman from New Mexico, uh, some, of his, some of his constituents wanted some answers. Uh, you know, Jesse Marcel finally broke the silence in 1978. He knew he was dying of emphysema, and he had handled pieces of this uh, wreckage, you know. And uh, he had a uh, he was on what they call a ham network, uh, a ham radio network, and he started talking about it on his little network. And word got around. This is 1978 because the you know the weather balloon story lasted that long from 47 to 78 uh, because the story was effectively killed because people were threatened with their lives. They were threatened with being put in an insane asylums. They were threatened with having their families killed. They were uh, they were threatened with uh, prison in uh, at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas if if uh, you were in the military and you talked. And so it held the the uh, cover up held. 
1978, word got out because Jesse Marcel was talking. And Stanton Friedman, uh, who I knew well, uh, he was down in Louisiana giving his uh, UFOs are real talk at a local, uh, I believe it was in Baton Rouge. And uh, it was at a local TV station. And uh, when the show was over, the producer said, you know, Stan, there's a fellow uh, that lives in Homa, Louisiana. Uh, maybe you ought to talk to him because uh, he says that he's held pieces of a flying saucer, UFO. And his name was uh, Jesse Marcel. So from the airport, Friedman calls up Jesse Marcel. You know, for like, you know, just see if it's worth anything, you know. And uh, it was. Uh, he impressed Stanton so, so much that Stanton hooked up with uh, a fellow by the name of William Moore, who had just had a big seller called the Philadelphia Experiment uh, Project Invisibility. It was uh, about a. Uh, United States destroyer that he claimed that was claimed to have undergone invisibility uh, during World War II and some things happened that were not good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, Friedman hooks up with William Moore to begin the civilian investigation of the Roswell case. It had been covered up since 1947. Nobody talked publicly until uh, Jesse Marcel started talking on his ham radio network. And he was then interviewed by Stanton Friedman. Two years after that, the first Roswell book comes out 1980, the Roswell incident. I know I was, you know, I was interested in UFOs, uh, but when I read the Roswell incident, it just blew me away. It just blew me away. All other UFO cases just fell by the wayside. I don't know if you remember a motion picture by the name of The Verdict, uh, starring Paul Newman. Yep, sure. Uh, the, 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 in the movie, P Paul Newman is sort of like a, a has-been lawyer. But Attorney, he, yep. He, yeah. And uh, this uh, a case falls into his hands of a woman who went in for an operation into a hospital and uh, she had eaten like within an hour of the operation and, uh, you're not supposed to operate on somebody that's eaten so soon, uh, where, where if you apply, uh, uh you know, the, uh, stuff in the mask, the, uh, oh, you know, the knocks you out, uh, they, something bad can happen. And so, and so they gave her the anesthetic and she became a vegetable. And, uh, so they, Paul Newman represented the, the poor woman, uh, because the, the claim was that she, she had not eaten a month, uh, a, an hour before the operation uh, versus that she did. And, uh, so Paul Newman gets this case, he's offered $200,000 uh, by the uh, hospital, it was a Catholic hospital, and they offered two hundred thousand dollars to settle the case. Now he's a down and out lawyer, and two hundred thousand dollars—I think the movie was made in like nineteen eighty-three. 
his two eighty two. And it, you know, it's interesting that that movie came out, and all of a sudden you see malpractice lawsuits and insurance for malpractice go through the roof immediately after that movie came out. Yes, yes. Uh, the, uh, the the and uh, Jack Warden is his gopher. You know, every every uh, prosecuting attorney that's. Uh, you know, in business, they have somebody that is like their gopher, you know, yeah. get me this, get me that. And uh, so after he, uh, Paul Newman is, uh, he played a, a character named Frank Galvin. Uh, after he's offered 200000 to uh to settle the case, he's sitting there and he has second thoughts. All of a sudden he has an epiphany. Oh my God, what am I doing? If I take this 200,000, nobody's going to know what happened to that poor woman that these two doctors messed up and they they changed the admitting form to to that uh, not show that he that the woman had eaten an hour, less than an hour before they applied the anesthetic. So Jack Warden his gopher says, "What are you doing? You were just offered to take the money, take the money." And uh, Paul Newman says, I can't do that. I can't do that. No one will know. And so Warden says, there'll be other cases, Frank. There'll be other cases. And Paul Newman says, no, this is the case. This is the only case. And that stuck with me for, you know, with all the UFO cases, for me, Roswell, this is the case. This is the only case. And uh, that's the way I feel feel about it. So, uh, it's all interesting. The other UFO cases, and there are some good ones. I can't doubt that. But to me, Roswell has everything. It's you know, it's we're we're not talking lights in the sky, Mel. We're talking a nuts and bolts uh, craft that uh, exploded, uh, came to Earth. There were uh, occupants. Uh, Four of them dead, one still alive. Uh, there was a cover-up, death threats, uh, uh, and slowly by slowly, over over thirty years, uh, we put the pieces of this puzzle together to where we 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 believe we've nailed it. The only thing we're missing is a piece of physical evidence. That's that's all we're missing. And uh, our critics, they don't they don't recognize that testimony, credible testimony in a court of law is considered evidence. People have gone to the gas chamber on testimony alone. So uh, that's the way we feel about it. And uh, like I said, uh, and we're searching for our, we call it our holy grail of Roswell, is a piece of this memory metal. It's a piece of memory metal because there have been pieces claimed to have been come from Roswell, but th- what happens is they're sent off to a laboratory somewhere, and you never hear never anymore come about back, it. Of course. And by the way, when I was growing up, I remember seeing so many, you know, schools, language learning schools by Charles Berlitz, and then later when I started looking into UFOs, found out that this same Charles Berlitz was a co-author of that book, the Roswell. Incident. You probably knew that. Yes. the re- The reason for that, uh, Mel, was that uh, Stanton Friedman and William Moore did did the research. 
Charles Berlitz didn't do anything other than put his name on the book. Marketing. And and the reason for that was that uh, William Moore was already known because he had that Philadelphia Experiment book, which was a, you know, a, uh, you know, sold fairly well. And Charles Berlitz had just had a big seller on the Bermuda Triangle. He had just had a big seller called the Bermuda Triangle. Nobody knew Stanton Friedman at that time. So they substituted Charles Berlitz as the co-author for Stanton Friedman because of, like you say, marketing. Because uh, people knew Charles Berlitz, and he had this big seller of the Bermuda Triangle. So that's how Stanton uh, was – I have to feel that he didn't feel too good about that, but that's what they did. <laughs> well, he wrote Crash on Corona, so at least. And he's known as one of the researchers that surfers in 1978 as one of the first ones to get well, this information he, out, right? He, yeah, he's known as the father of Roswell. Right. He's the father of Roswell. And I uh, certainly uh, agree with that, yes. But clarify for uh, me, from 1947 to 1978, what happened in those 30 years that the population really almost forgot about it until 1978? Well, the cover-up worked because mm-hmm. uh, people were not talking publicly. Uh, the, the people who knew were afraid. We have, we have uh, a lot of testimony from people who were threatened with, with death, and uh, they were afraid. And plus— uh, the major media has never liked let, – let's start with – the major media has never liked the paranormal. And UFOs uh, – uh, the subject of UFOs is considered paranormal. To me, it's – to me, paranormal is things like ghosts and witches and that sort of right. stuff. You know, you know what I mean? That's not UFOs. UFOs is something different. But nevertheless, the, the major media wouldn't cover – you know, you know, the first couple months in 47, they did cover it because it was brand new. Nobody knew what they were. And they were they were front page headlines all over the country for several months. But when Roswell happened uh, and they covered that up, all of a sudden uh, they they lost interest. And uh, General Ramey himself, this is the commanding officer of the 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, the uh, orchestrator of the famous uh, press co- the weather balloon press conference, uh, where he's posing with a weather balloon. Uh, he also did a radio interview, and he suggested uh, by comparing that he said, uh, "Well, you know, UFOs. Well, they didn't call them UFOs back then. Flying saucers have been reported in every state of the union except Kansas." And the, the announcer goes, oh, yeah? He says, and you know why? He says, because Kansas is a dry state. Dry state. I remember that. <laughs> so that took care of that. And, uh, no, between the ridicule and uh, the other thing that happened was in the 1950s, this was bound to happen, the opportunists. You had the, this phenomenon called the contactees. These were people who uh, claimed that uh, they they knew our, they knew that the, the aliens were our space brothers they were here to save us and yeah, I just was taken around the 
universe and uh, or the solar system in one of their ships, and I'm just back from Saturn. Folks. Are you talking about George Adams, the George Adamskis of the world? Yes, yes. George Adamski, uh, Howard Menger, uh, and there were there were a handful of them, and boy did the media latch onto them as see, folks, this is what you have. I keep using the term UFOs, but this is what flying saucers is all about. It's George Adamski, it's Howard Menger uh, saying that are the, they're friends with our space brothers, and they're only here to help us. Like a and cult. They've been, they, they've been around the the uh, you know the solar system, and uh, that killed that. I mean, that was really uh, really detrimental to to the whole subject field. And uh, that land, that that's still with us to some degree, uh, Mel. It's still with us. Uh, the ridicule. Factor. Oh yeah, it's like a like a cult almost. I remember back in nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine. I forgot when it was in San Diego. What was the name? Heaven's Gate. Remember that? Oh yes. They, they, another yeah. cult. Well, all the the, the teenagers died after drinking yep. more or less what was uh, a Jonestown like event. Yep. I forget the fellow's name. Uh, uh, Rael uh, or something like that? Yeah, I can't remember his name, but there was, I don't know, 50, 60 people. Uh, this is when the comet was uh, not Halley's Comet. The Marshall Applewhite. Hey. Yeah, I remember the comet, but it was Marshall Applewhite. Yes, uh, Hale Bop, the Hale Bop right. Comet. The Hale Bop Comet was coming, and they thought it was a spaceship. And they were going to go meet the Hale-Bopp comet uh, by killing themselves. There are spirits or something. And, uh, Marshall Applewhite, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, that you know, that uh, unfortunately, uh, people like that, they infest almost every everything. You know, if if if... If something hangs around long enough, you're going to get some kooks. But the know? interesting thing, Tom, is that UFOs, now UAPs, which is the new term that they're using, is that the yeah. media, yeah, they're talking about it more, but not too much. But when they do, their ratings, regardless of which TV channel that is, the ratings go through the roof. Yes. It's been shown that the the most popular items in uh, on cable television are sharks and UFOs. <laughs> sharks? Sharks. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Shark Week, you know, like Shark Week. Yeah. It's true. It's true. The the top two were sharks and UFOs. I don't know if that was a couple of years ago, but, uh, you know, they have Shark Week every every year. And, uh, I mean, after a while, it, it, it wears, you know, it wears off because you know, how many how many ways can you show great white sharks yeah. with their mouth open, you right. know? So... But, I mean, I watch it. <laughs> and how many sharks really kill people every single year? I mean, you would think back in 1970, what was it, 75 when Jaws came out? All of a yes. sudden, all the tourist, touristy uh, towns close to beaches were suffering because a lot of people weren't going to the beach anymore. Yes. Well, uh, he, uh, the, the, the truth be told... At some point, and it was before before 1970, I would not go in the surf anymore. I I just had a strange feeling. I I said I I'm not going to go into the surf anymore, and it was uh, fear of fear of something, you know. 
But after Jaws, it was definitely not going into the surf anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, that's true. It's uh, sharks and the UFOs, and uh, uh, you know, the travel. The Travel Channel has devoted uh, not that any not to travel anymore. Everything is the paranormal. Yeah. everything is the paranormal. Now, how many and, days, Tom, after the crash, did it take before the military? showed up. I thought I would have thought it would have been almost immediately since they had radar. So the military showed up because they get a phone call, that your Air Force get a phone call. Exactly. Exactly. Uh uh Marcel and Cavett go out to the the uh sheep pasture uh on the Sunday they follow the rancher out there Sunday, July the sixth. They don't get to the sheep pasture until the next day, the seventh. Now, uh, here and then, uh, Cavett goes back with a Jeep full of wreckage on the seventh more, uh, Marcel goes back on the eighth and then they have that Tuesday morning, uh, uh, office conference, uh, the regular one they have every Tuesday and that's where they went over the, the, the crash. Now on the seventh, here's, here's the, here's the interesting thing. So. On on the morning of the seventh, Marcel is still out. Uh, the, the, both of the actually Cavett and Marcel are both still out at the Foster Ranch site. Well, a few miles just uh, north of Roswell, this is another site. There's some archaeologists out there, and they stumble upon. Now I told you about the first two sites: the the sheep pasture. And then the low bluff where two aliens had been blown out of the ship when it was when it exploded and came to rest in a low bluff. Uh, we call it the D. Proctor site because we learned about it from D. Proctor. There was a third site, which we call the impact site. So the Roswell case has three sites, uh, sheep pasture on the Brazel Ranch, the uh, D. Proctor site that had uh, low bluff with two dead bodies that had been blown out. And then the impact site, which is about 35 miles from the debris field site, east, east of the debris field site, near Highway 285, which goes to Roswell. Well, on that site, early in the morning of the 7th, now this is on Monday, uh, Marcel and Cabot don't know anything about this site. A group of archaeologists, we originally thought they were from the University of Pennsylvania, and that's how I got involved in the case, because I lived in Philadelphia at the time, and uh, with degrees in anthropology and archaeology, I volunteered my service to try to find the archaeologists. A group of archaeologists, they actually were from Texas Tech University in uh, Lubbock, Texas, home of Buddy Holly. They stumbled upon the third site, which had, when the, when the ship exploded, we believe it was struck by lightning. That's just speculation, but it was either an internal explosion. Uh, you know, don't touch that button, Gork, Gort, you know, <laughs> uh, or, uh, if it was external, it was, it had to be a, you know, struck by lightning. The inner cabin withstood the blast and continued on for another 35 miles, coming to rest just uh, 
30 to 35 miles north-northwest of Roswell. In that uh, inner cabin, or it could have been a capsule of some sort, but let's stick with the inner cabin, were three occupants. When found, two were dead and one was still alive. They were found by this group of archaeologists, and uh, it was reported by one of the archaeologists from the little uh, hamlet of Mesa, which was actually just a gas station on Highway 285. They called it into the fire department. There's been a crash out here. Get somebody out here. Well, they did. They didn't know what they had. They, you know, they thought maybe it's a, you know, there's plane crashes out there with certainly with a air base uh, south of town. They were used to small crashes or big crashes, whatever. So out comes the fire department. And uh, or I'm sorry, no, the uh, the fire department is notified and the sheriff is notified the before the city fire department can get out there. This is on the 7th. The uh, commanding officer sends somebody to the fire department. Don't don't go out. We, we will handle this. This is the base now. They say, we will handle it. They had their own fire department. The base had their own fire department. So the city fire department was banned from going out there. But one of the fire chiefs, one of the crew chiefs in the city fire department, he gets into his own car and out he goes. And he gets to the site before the military can get there in force. And he gets to this impact site. He sees the two bodies dead. His eyes are focused on the these two dead bodies. When out of the peripheral vision of his uh, uh, of one of his eyes, he sees movement. There's something moving in his periphery, and he looks out and hears a creature from another world uh, staggering around, three and a half feet tall with a big oval-shaped head. He said, "What? What is going on here?" And uh, we get this story from his family because he was told, you know, don't don't talk. We'll kill you. We'll kill your family. We get this story from his daughter, uh, Frankie Rowe, Frankie Dwyer Rowe, uh, years later. And it uh, turns out that because they, they wanted to know all about, you know, well, what did it look like, Dad? And, and uh, his answer was child of the earth, child of the earth. Well, I. I'm from a, I'm from Philadelphia. I don't know what a child of the earth is. Well, if you live in the New Mexico, a child of the earth is like the uh, a potato bug, or a, the other name for it is the Jerusalem cricket. It's a it's a uh, little uh, insect type uh, creature. But the reason they call it the child of the earth is that its head is pink, and on the top of the head it has these markings. Like when a, a new child is born, the the uh, bones of the skull have not fused yet, and you have these dark lines where the, where the the bones have not ossified yet, and it's the same on this this uh, child of the earth, this cricket, this uh, potato bug. Its head looks like that. It's got these markings on the top of it, and that's why they call it the child of the earth. So that when they when uh, they asked, what does it look like, Dad? He said, child of the earth. I see. Well, they knew what it meant. Uh, I certainly didn't. I, I had to look it up on the Internet. It's a colloquial Scared. term from the area. 
yes. And, uh, so they said, well, did you, uh, you know, did you talk to it? And he said, yes, we, we talked to one another. And of course, we, you know, when he's telling this to his family, he's all in disbelief, you know. He says, yes, we, we've talked to one another, but we don't, we didn't talk to one another like we're talking now, like using your mouth and your tongue and your teeth. And all. We talked to one another in our heads. Telepathically. We to one well. another in our heads, which, you know, to, to me is like mental telepathy. Yeah. Well, the next thing he said, well, what did you, t- what did you say? What did you talk about? And he said, well, uh, the, the creature did most of the talking, and the creature said, "Don't oh, oh, worry." Hold it right there. I think this will be a good cliffhanger for part two because we have to break after the first hour. This is really interesting. I, I, I don't think I've ever discussed this in so much detail, Tom. So I appreciate it. Seventy-five years after the incident, and we have so much more to come. One more hour with Tom Carey. Tom, how can people buy the book and learn more about your work? Well, the book. Uh, it's the third edition of our bestseller, Witness to Roswell. And uh, you, you could get it at Barnes & Noble, or uh, that's pretty much the only bookstore left, but you certainly can get it on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Our website is down, uh, Mel. It's been taken over by the Chinese, believe it or not. Really? We've, we've had it since 2007, and uh, the Chinese co-opted it. And it's now some sort of, uh, well, I don't know what it is, but we don't have it anymore. And we're trying to get another website. But uh, the best way is Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And uh, it was our bestseller, but we've updated it, expanded it with new information. And uh, it's uh, considered the best book ever written about the Roswell incident. And it, we're, we're proud about that. I've learned so much from the book, things that I didn't know before. When we come back, I also want to ask you, was it only one craft? Now, was it lightning or was it radar that affected the craft's control system? And I've always wondered too, Tom, if they come from a planet or galaxy far, far away, isn't it sad to crash this way? But we'll get your answer and we'll continue with the story about what these two telepathically communicated with one another. This is Mel Hostelrick. My special guest today is Thomas Carey. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas because you don't want to believe, you want to know.
small thing You watch your feet For cracks in the past Beautiful shit 